Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Buck Sexton here with you. Very excited to get a chance to hang out with you today. Thank you so much for being here. Oh boy, we've got some stories. Oh, we have stories, my friends. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK is the number. Buck, short for Buckman, for those of you who are wondering, which, which is, in fact, my, my name, my, my middle name. So there you have it. Uh, let's get into it. Uh, you have the FCC getting people really fired up over net neutrality. And I have to say, sometimes... I have a subject that I want to talk about on air on this show, and I am just not in any way sure. I, I don't know how much you listening care or don't care about it. So, so do let me know. Twitter, Facebook, call in. <laughs> Even if you want to call in, just tell producer Amy, we don't need, a, we don't need a much more on net neutrality. We've got an expert coming on. I'll talk to you a little bit about it. But for some people, it's a big deal. That'll be coming up a little bit more in the next hour. We also have... Some uh, political stories today, including is Rubio a no? Is is he? He's a no. He was a no, but he's not really a no. Does little Marco want a little attention? Is that what's going on here? Do we know? You know, he he wants right. He wants a, a larger tax credit for the working. Right, okay, is he going to get it though, or is this just grandstanding? We'll see. But we got to talk about the tax reform issue because if they can't get if they can't get tax reform done, then you know. What what's the point? <laughs> what is Congress? If they can't get tax reform done, do we just live with the laws we have, the tax code we have, and you know Trump can run the federal government, cut back regulations, and that's just it? If Congress can't do this, I can't tell you what the point was of of giving the Republicans a majority in the House and the Senate, other than they're not Democrats. So there's that. You know, you, you don't get the Democrat agenda. So there you have it. Although, how different is Republican spending really from Democrat spending? I know it's a, an issue maybe for another time. Uh, but the big breaking story that's up on Fox right now, which I want to spend a little time on with you, has to do with the whole notion of institutions, the DOJ, the deep state, the federal government, and what's really going on in the centers of power in D.C. right now. So he, here's the latest on this. And it just it just got released right within the hour before we came on air from from Fox News. And it has to do with the James Comey when he was FBI director, the James Comey edits to uh, the charging. Well, what would have been it turned out to be not a charging document, but really an exoneration document of the James Comey edits to the statement on Hillary's email probe. Um, this is what we this is what Ron Johnson, Senator Ron Johnson, who's chairman of the Senate Homeland Security Committee, released copies Thursday of the edits 
and the language that Comey was going to read in his statement shows that he changed the description of Clinton's actions and those of her colleagues from grossly negligent to extremely careless. I've been talking to you about this for quite a while now. This, the, the ramifications of this will stretch on for quite some time. Bill Clinton lied under oath. I know you're thinking I'm going to talk Hillary, and I will in a second, but just stay with me here. Bill Clinton lied under oath without legal consequence. When the president of the United States can do that and is not held to account, that sends a message. It sends a message that reverberates through the rest of the justice system, through the media, through our culture, through our country. And it is interesting that his wife, who was also a senior government official, secretary of, the, secretary of state, and then the presumed next president of the United States, uh, broke the law many times and was just given a pass because of who she was. That also has reverberations through our, gov- our government. There are echoes of that that continue on to today. This wasn't even very long ago. You could say the Bill Clinton thing, you know, I did not have sexual relations. And we all remember, right? But the Hillary thing, hello, that is newer. That we have very fresh memories of. In fact, some of the people who are directly involved with trying to use the legal system and the Department of Justice in this country to slow and perhaps even stop this, the current administration were involved in the decision-making about Hillary's emails. This is not whataboutism. This is just reality. This is just looking at what has happened in this country, in the corridors of power, those who are given a tremendous... Remember, the ability to prosecute is the... The ability to prosecute is the ability to destroy. The decision, the prosecutorial discretion that is given to those who work in the Department of Justice and, and other prosecutorial... Uh, offices around the country, whether or not they bring charges is everything. Even if you're innocent, you're probably destroyed after they've charged you criminally with something. It doesn't really matter. So that is among the most weighty and awesome in the sense of awe-inspiring powers that the federal government has over all of us. And when we see it's clear abuse for political ends, we should be deeply disturbed and upset by it. And the revelation today is, I should say, it's really just confirmation. It, it is confirming what we already knew. And that is that FBI Director Comey, who figured he would continue to be FBI Director, remember this. Don't forget in the timeline, the context, everything that was going on here, Comey was bailing out his future boss. Comey liked the notion that he would be the one that would continue as FBI director with a president that he had saved from criminal prosecution. Comey was definitely liking that whole situation. And so he changed the wording here. And changing the wording meant that they could create a pretext to let Hillary Clinton go with not even a slap on the wrist, with nothing, nothing at all. Now, you you cannot help but juxtapose You cannot help but compare what happened for the Hillary investigation. And like I said, there's new. We've just seen the documents today. They realized they had to play with the words 
to get a different outcome because the outcome was all that mattered. Justice was secondary to Hillary's going to be the next president of the United States. So now we see more more evidence of that. And you take that and you compare it to what's going on with the with the Trump administration and all the stuff that we've seen, all the stuff that's going on uh, with the Mueller probe. Uh, I wrote about it today at the Hill. I mean, I, I, I think it's just rotten to the core. I'm, I'm sorry. There's too much. There's too much that's problematic that we already know about with the Trump Mueller Russia collusion probe. It's already too far gone. Uh, that there are officials exchanging text messages where they explicitly reference a plot, a scheme, a scheme to force the president out of office or to erase the presidency, to undo the results of the election. And these are people that are very close to the actual investigation that could do that. As I was saying to you yesterday, the FBI is a big place, like 30,000 FBI personnel, something like 30, 35,000, something like that across the country. DOJ is even bigger. I think DOJ employs something like 100,000 people. It just so happens that the handful of them who have the most authority and are the closest to the Clinton email investigation, sitting down with General Flynn during the interrogation, the Russia collusion investigation, and the counterintelligence investigation at the FBI and DOJ that led up to the Russia collusion investigation with Mueller. There are there are never Trumpers, anti-Trumpers, hashtag resistance people. Some of them have connections to Fusion GPS, which may have been used as the pretext for the entire counterintelligence investigation with Russia in the first place. And this is, like I've been saying, this is coincidence. This is supposed to be nothing. We wave this aside. Just today, Ron Johnson shows us that when the FBI wants to play nice, FBI can be very nice. You know, they'll they'll make it go away. FBI wants to play rough. You're Papadopoulos, Manafort, Flynn, that's when you're on the wrong side of the politics of the FBI. The, uh, the IRS was weaponized against the Tea Party. The notion that the DOJ is beyond reproach and could never be weaponized against a political candidate is nonsense. To suggest otherwise is cynical or just stupidity because there are lots of folks in this government in high, at high levels who really, really hate this administration, who hate this president, and view him as a threat to their careers, to their power, to their sense of their own standing among their peers and in their communities. What would they be unwilling to do? I mean, that's that's the question you have to start asking yourself, given all of this. So uh, I, I think we need to keep the pressure on and keep the heat on here. There are so many lies told about this, and they they want to just move past it. I saw it today. The latest here is that there are uh, some other there are text messages with some of these with Strzok and Page and these other FBI officials that uh, there are text messages that show that they criticize Bernie Sanders as well and criticize some other. Yeah, but that's that that's irrelevant. Because they don't talk about a plot to dethrone Bernie Sanders, in a sense. And Bernie Sanders is not the subject of a highly politicized investigation of 
criminal wrongdoing that could bring down a presidency, right? So it, it's just they're just throwing up more smoke. It's a smoke screen. It has nothing to do with anything. But the stakes are very high here. And I think there's a sense among many of the hashtag resistance that they were not able to bring this administration down in year one. It's probably only going to get harder for them. They really threw everything they had at Trump in this year and, and all of his top people. And the Mueller probe still grinds on, but it doesn't look like they're going to get what they're looking for. Which means in year two, they may have to actually make arguments about policy. In year two, you may have Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer standing in front of the American people and having to say things like, yeah, you know, we kind of want open borders. The more immigrants from the third world, the more unskilled, uneducated immigrants we can bring into this country, the better. That's going to really help us out. That's going to help us pay down our long-term debt. That's going to make our economy dynamic and vibrant. And yeah, oh, by the way, we're Democrats, so we also stand for, you know, abortion on demand for nine months of a pregnancy and 27 different genders and all that other stuff, too, that the American people love so much. That's going to be a problem for them. So I think there's also a quiet desperation among the uh, anti-Trumpers who felt like the Mueller probe might be their salvation. I don't think it's going to happen. But I also want to point out how how grotesque and dishonest this whole endeavor seems to me to have been thus far. We also have to talk taxes today. We got a, I got a lot, a lot of things I want to discuss with you. Um, we'll have Andy McCarthy joining to talk to us about the uh, Mueller probe here in just a few minutes. Um, I will also we'll get into the ta- the latest on the taxes. We're talking about Amarosa. Got some updates on that whole scenario. That's an interesting situation. And we have we have a lot going on, my friends. We have we have much to discuss here. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. All I want for Christmas is to have uh, lots of fun chats with Team Buck here in the Freedom Hut. So call me. Tell me. I'd love to get a bunch of first-time callers this week, next week. That's the top of my Christmas list for right now. That and uh, homes for all the abandoned puppies and, and world peace. So you guys can make at least one of those things come true. We'll be right back. Fusion GPS was a Hillary Clinton campaign vendor. And the Justice Department was working hand in glove with it, perhaps paying it money. I think that suspect, you know, the, the suspicion is they were paying them money. Top DOJ official's wife is working with them. What, what, there was no distinction between the Hillary Clinton campaign and the Department of Justice and the FBI. And the goal was unified, which was to get Donald Trump. Forget about shutting down Mr. Mueller. Do we need to shut down the FBI because it was turned into a KGB-type operation well, by the Obama administration? That's Tom Fitton of Judicial Watch on Fox News last night uh, with the excellent Shannon Bream on, on her show. Now, a lot of what Fitton says there is true. I, I don't I don't like this KGB FBI thing at the end because, yeah, everyone needs to people who say that don't know anything about the KGB and how it worked or what it was really like. You know, this is this is it starts to worry me. It's like when people say, you know. They, you, if, if someone disagrees with me on taxes, they call me a Nazi. Like, that's a little, that's not okay. Um, this is too far, right? And to say that it's a KGB-like operation, um, one would be more familiar with the KGB and realize that that's a really, that's a really, uh, a defamation of the FBI. Now, I'm not saying there aren't people in the FBI or in the DOJ who weren't playing political games and weren't doing things they shouldn't have been doing. Um, but they they weren't, you know, 
holding anyone's family members under threat of assassination or something. I mean, the KGB was did very, very horrible things, part of purges, part of uh, killing a whole lot of innocent people. So let's not uh, get it. Now, I know people would be like, well, but then there was the internal versus the external wing. You know what I'm saying, right? The Russian secret police is not something that we should be comparing to the FBI. Nonetheless, uh, he's right about Fusion GPS being far too close to the uh, Hillary camp. I mean, to the FBI and the Hillary campaign. And if the I just keep coming back to this, if the uh, roles were reversed, Democrats would be completely losing their minds right now. If you had a Hillary Clinton presidency that was under siege from a an a seemingly endless special counsel investigation and then it came out that the possible basis of the investigation was Trump campaign opposition research working with pro-Trump officials in the DOJ. It's all we'd hear about all the time. And then just take it, take it a step back. Imagine if there were some senior people at DOJ that were just caught on text messages. You know, senior government officials at the Department of Justice caught on text messages saying, you know, and when I mean senior, I mean at the very top. Not like, oh, a senior person that was there for five years. I mean, somebody who's actually almost running the place. And we find out that they were saying, you know, how do we how do we get Obama out of office? On government owned property, I should note, saying it in in a government office on government phones. That would be a problem, I think. Right. We'd hear about it a lot. Uh, Let's see. We got Brian in Alaska. K.E.N.I. Hey, Brian. Brian. Yes, sir. Hey, quick question for you. So what do you think about Mueller? What if he wants to smell like a rose at the end of this whole thing and files charges against Peter Strzok and uh, and his girlfriend and uh, all this other stuff that's going on behind the scenes that we're just finding out about now? There's no charges that they could file against them, really. I mean, at, at worst, maybe there would be ethical professional conduct violations, but there's no, there's no charge. See, this is part of the problem is that Democrats... Status Democrats love to abuse discretion. You give a status power and they'll always hide behind, well, I had the discretion to do this. And that's what I meant about the prosecutorial power. It is so profound because prosecutors aren't really, you know, they can if they can make a case, they can bring it against anybody. Right. There's very little check on their. Go ahead. And the FBI can investigate anybody as long as they've got a criminal predicate for it. Right. So is it illegal for them to talk about politics at the FBI office? Nah, it's not illegal for them to say they don't like somebody or that someone's an idiot. And look, I don't want it to be illegal for FBI people to say that, but it does mean they should recuse themselves from any investigation that's highly politically sensitive. And, you know, these are distinctions. We need. Go ahead. Like Sessions did, right? Yeah, like Sessions did. Sessions, exactly. Sessions recused himself. You'll notice the Loretta Lynch did not recuse herself from the Hillary Clinton email situation. So there's a huge double standard, Brian. We see it all the time, man. Thanks for calling it from Alaska. Shield tie, brother. Uh, We got Andy McCarthy joining us here in a few minutes. He's a former uh, assistant U.S. attorney. He knows this stuff backwards and forwards. You're going to want to hear what he has to say. And we'll talk about taxes. Buck talks taxes. Coming up. Welcome back, team. A lot in the news this week about the Mueller probe. You got these texts between senior FBI officials. You have more connections between the FBI folks involved in some of these different key investigations, as well as uh, Fusion GPS. 
Something stinks here, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're going to stick to the facts and see where we are. And to help us do that, we've got Andy McCarthy on the line now. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, best-selling author, contributing editor at National Review, all-around great dude. Andy, thanks for calling in. Buck, my pleasure. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I know you've been very busy this week. So a lot of people have been wondering what you've been up to. I read your very excellent editorial in the Washington Post on this issue uh, how let, let's start because I've got a few things I want to ask you here, as well as, you know, where do you think the Mueller investigation is going based on what we know so far? But we'll get to that in a second. First, the texts. My, my premise here, Andy, is that the texts alone are not not an issue, meaning that, yeah, I, I was in the CIA. Did we talk some some trash about different government officials? Yeah, we didn't do it on government owned property, but certainly we would have said some stuff here and there. But there was reason to believe in at least one of the text exchanges that it might have gone a little beyond that. But what do you think? What do you make of all of it? Yeah, I was ready to dismiss most of it for the same reasons, Buck. I mean, you know, but I had uh, I was a conservative prosecutor in New York. My friends were liberal Democrat prosecutors. We used to josh about politics. It was uh, a lot of kibitzing, didn't amount to much of anything. And certainly it had no impact on the way we did our jobs, including in, you know, political corruption cases. I'm not trying to suggest we ever had a political explosive case like this one that I can recall. But, um, you know, just it, it, you apply law to facts and it's kind of clinical. It's not uh, it's not really an ideological job being a prosecutor, at least it's not supposed to be. It shouldn't be. Yeah. Right. Um, so the one uh, the one thing that cuts against that is this uh, text that involves or describes a meeting that was held by pretty high-up FBI people in intelligence uh, in the office of the number two guy, uh, Andrew McCabe, uh, during which uh, Tahir Strzok, who is uh, Peter Strzok, is the, uh, uh, the intelligence agent who's on these uh, texts back and forth with his paramour, uh, it sounds like there was some discussion about how the Bureau, the FBI, uh, couldn't afford the risk of a Trump victory. And they talked about, you know, potentially having an insurance policy in that connection. Uh, you know, you don't want to go off wild on this, but it, real, it sounds really bad. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, we'd want to have a lot more investigation and context about. Yeah, I know that if I feel like if I were working in the intelligence community, and there were a lot of news reports about how we were involved in a coup somewhere. And we're like, no, no, we were never involved in a coup. And then it came out that I was text messaging with like some people that, you know, r- run the CIA about how, oh, that coup we plotted in that place. Wouldn't that be? People would take it. Yeah. They would take issue with that, Andy. I, I think that would be a red flag. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I'm just, you know, putting it all together, Buck. I, I wonder, I mean, they, they, uh, they have a lot of lines into this steel dossier right now. We know that now it's a campaign product. I don't know how well the FBI knew that in time. You know, I don't know that. If, I don't know that uh, there, there's layers of um, insulation. It seems between steel, and then you have GPS fusion, then you have the law firm, and then you have the Clinton campaign. So, how much if the FBI is dealing directly with steel? How much does the FBI know that what they're actually dealing with is a uh, is a campaign opposition research project? I don't know if they know that at all, but we do know that they imagine they had to have believed him 
on some level. Otherwise, what would have been the point of, uh, of going back to him? So what's going on around that time? Well, Steele is coming up with this very disturbing story that, uh, you know, a Trump campaign official is meeting with top uh, officials of the Kremlin-connected oil giant in uh, Russia, and they're talking about uh, a quid pro quo where the settlement, the uh, sanctions, these are not the Obama sanctions that were imposed in, uh, in December of 2016, but the sanctions that were imposed on uh, Russia in connection with Ukraine and Crimea that, you know, lift the sanctions and Trump uh, and some of his associates could get like a 19 percent interest in a huge deal involving um, uh, involving Rosneft, the oil giant. And I just wonder if that is what they thought um, if that was what they thought they were uh, on the verge of being able to prove. At what point, Andy, is the Mueller probe too polluted to to just continue with? Or, or I mean, I, I agree with you. And I, I read uh, what you wrote in the post about this. I think that the probe needs to continue for Trump's benefit because if they're not going to get Trump, it's going to end. Although, I don't know, when do you, do you have any sense of when you think it will end? Well, my view of it, Buck, has been that it's got to go at least through 2018. And the reason I, I feel that way is not just because our history with these special counsel, independent prosecutor type investigations is that they go on forever. I mean, Lawrence Walsh was at it for like, uh, you know, seven or eight years, right? Um, but, I, but I think, you know, Mueller is a, a smart enough guy to know that no prosecutor would ever, in his right mind, think about indicting the president, uh, not because it's inconceivable that a president could, could commit a crime, but just because the way our system works, a president doesn't have to let himself be indicted, right? He can pardon everybody, he can pull the plug on the investigation. He can fire the prosecutor. So he's got. I got to think that going into this, if he's got any idea of, of making some kind of a case on Trump, and I'm not saying he does or he doesn't. He may just be, you know, trying to get to the bottom of what happened here. But um, you wouldn't think of indicting the president. So the only other alternative would be to to impeach him, or at least to be the vehicle. Uh, by which Congress has the information where they can decide whether to impeach and remove him or not. Uh, and if that, if, if that is any part of the thinking here, the only way that could conceivably happen is if the Democrats flip the House in the 2018 midterms. So I don't think they'd ever remove Trump. I mean, unless something explosive was discovered or something, you know, really strange happens between now and then. But I do think the Democrats would very much like to impeach Trump, that is, to file articles of impeachment. Um, it's kind of like a get-even thing for, uh, for Clinton in the late 90s. Um, and I, I think that um, if, that's, if that's the thinking, you know, there's no point in even raising the matter of impeachment now, even though they, you know, they, they did it as kind of a clown show last week. I think they got like 58 votes for it. Um, but if the House if the House gets flipped and the Democrats have a majority, they're much more disciplined than the Republicans about sticking together. And if they want to indict Trump, they can I'm not indict him. But if they want to impeach him, they can impeach him whether Mueller comes up with something or not. Yeah. But at what point is the Mueller probe in terms of the politicization and the, the uh, belief in a weaponization of this? 
When is it so ugly that that they would be justified in taking action up to and including firing Mueller and shutting this whole thing down? Because this week looks pretty bad to me, Andy. I mean, you got a guy who met with Fusion GPS, who's part of all this. His wife worked for Fusion GPS. I mean, I could sit here. You know the names as well as I do. Rattle them off, and it doesn't look good. I mean, it looks very bad. <laughs> yeah, but let's let's separate out what looks bad. It looks bad for um, the Justice Department and the FBI. But that part of it doesn't look bad for Mueller's investigation because he's, you know, the guy that we're talking about is not a Mueller guy. Now, to my mind, what looks bad for Mueller is Strzok was on Mueller's case. But, you know, from Mueller's perspective, on balance, he looks pretty good because what he found out about these texts, evidently, he he got rid of uh, Strzok. And, you know, the other guy I think that doesn't look good in this whole thing is, uh, is Weissman, Andrew Weissman, who's like Mueller's deputy, who was the one who uh, had the uh, celebratory uh, email for Sally Yates when she insubordinately defied Trump on enforcing the travel ban, which to me is problematic, not just because on its face it's insubordination, which is terribly inappropriate for Justice Department officials. Let's remember, at this point, Weissman was a top official in the Obama Justice Department. I think he was chief of the major frauds or major crimes part of the of the Justice Department. But the other thing, Buck, is substantive. Um, in, in, the, in the obstruction aspect of the investigation, one of the things that you have to decide is how much independence do law enforcement officials have from uh, the direction of the chief executive. Uh, and that's a very loaded legal question and how you answer it uh, probably on that hinges whether you think the president can be charged with obstruction of justice or not. So to my mind, looking at uh, Weissman's conduct in connection with Yates, it sounds like he's already, before he was ever on Mueller's investigation, he already decided that question, at least in connection with Trump, right? Because he's in- encouraging Yates that she doesn't have to uh, follow the president's orders. So I think he's an inappropriate choice. I thought he was an inappropriate choice from the beginning. I think Mueller's got kind of a blind spot for him, which is unfortunate. But other than that, if you look at what Mueller has done so far, he hasn't really laid a glove on Trump. He hasn't accused Trump of any wrongdoing. Um, He hasn't even brought up Russia or collusion in any of the three sets of charges that he's brought so far. So as frustrating as this is for the president... I think his best play here probably is to ride this out and hope that Mueller gets to but the, this thing, the But you're telling me, Andy, this, this thing could stretch on for years? I mean, I, you know, it's, I'm going to have to move to Switzerland. <laughs> well, you know, look, Buck, we've all been here while these uh, independent council things went on for years. And, you know, the Republican, the Republican doesn't end, but it does make it, uh, you know, it does make it difficult to govern. All right. All right, Andy. Well, we appreciate it, man. Everyone should check out Andy's latest at nationalreview.com. Andy McCarthy, everybody. Sir, have a great weekend. If we don't talk to you again, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to you, Andy. Merry Christmas, Buck. Thanks so much. Team, we'll hit a quick break here. We'll be right back. Buck Saxon here. We've got some lines lit. Let's get to it. Evelyn in North Carolina. Hey, Evelyn, how are you? I'm doing great, Buck. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you. Well, I'm a little concerned about our president because, first, 
they, you know, were trying to get them on this Russian collusion thing, so they can't do that. So then the next thing I hear are there's five Democrats that want to impeach him, and they're trying to do that. They're not going to be able to do that because he hasn't done anything wrong. Then, now, with all this, uh, you know, uh, terrible things going on with him, now they have women coming saying that he was, you know, guilty of sexual harassment. Well, I don't believe that. And I'm just so afraid that something bad's going to happen. And I want to know, what's your opinion? Where the heck is our Attorney General Sessions? I think he has to go. Yeah, he's, he's a, I've been saying it for a while, he's a Boy Scout in a street fight. It's not good. I don't think he realized. He's got to go. I don't think he realized what he was getting into here. And, and you know, you, you look at the... Say what you will about Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch under the Obama administration, and I've I've said a lot. Uh, they were they they had that president's back all the time. Uh, they were always oh. looking out for Obama and, and always looking out for the Democrat Party. And with Sessions, you know, there's a little bit of uh, I, I think some do-gooderism maybe that's gotten in the way for him. I don't know, but he he has not been. Uh, I, I don't think he understood what he was signing up for to be a part of this administration. So that's... Well, if you can't do the job, be a good sport and get out. Yeah, if you can't can't take the heat, get out of the, get out of the barbecue <laughs> joint, right? I mean, Sessions has got to find somewhere else to hang out. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, Thanks. I also wanted yes? to tell you, you were wondering about a Thanksgiving song, and I've been trying for several weeks to tell you. There's always, there's no place like home for the holidays with Perry Como. And then there's always the uh, hymnal um, uh, to, let's see, we gather together to ask the Lord's blessing. So there's your two Thanksgiving songs. Oh, okay. All right. Well, thank you, Evelyn. <laughs> Evelyn's like filling up, filling up my MP3 list here. Thank you very much. Shields Hi, Evelyn. Merry Christmas to you. Ryan in New York, usually a podcast listener. We got him live, though. Hey, Ryan. How you doing, Buck? I'm uh, good. Fairly new listener, first-time caller, so there's your Christmas wish. Wow, Merry Christmas to me. Thank you, sir. <laughs> All right. So, uh, thought and, I guess, question about taxes. So, I, I know you've shared your opinion about the corporate tax reduction and whether or not that's actually going to mean a you know a benefit to the middle class so i'm kind of in your camp and i wondered you know i get the idea that it's going to promote jobs and all that but i just wonder why why don't we ever consider a prorated tax plan for businesses that is based upon how much of that business is actually u.s based um yeah that sounds sounds like an interesting plan i guess it's just not you know, no one, no one's crunched the numbers on it that I know because they haven't taken that approach. So I couldn't tell you one way or the other how useful or not, or how likely or not likely that would be. Um, look, I think that they're they're doing some things here that at the end, and, and we'll see if Marco Rubio's Marco Rubio's last stand on taxes. Uh, we'll see if it actually works or not. We'll talk about that in the next hour. But there has been a little bit more of a focus on, okay, what about people who pay taxes? You know, what about how that works out? And, and we will see, um, we will see what, what it actually looks like when it's finally all said and done. But I, the, you know, the doubling of the child tax credit would be, or the, you know, the some of the things they put into the tax 
bill would be good, uh, would be good for all of us. And in general, I'm in favor of cutting taxes. I'm also in favor of cutting spending, but that's not going to happen. So we'll have to see. Right, right. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I'm definitely I agree with everything that you say about the tax plan. I mean, I do think it's still a it's a win, Um, you know, just whether or not that is a little bit of a leap of faith on how much of that benefit to corporations will actually translate to benefits to. to Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, look, it's not, and thank you, Ryan, for calling in. Have a Merry Christmas. Uh, you know, I would say that it's, I was hoping for like a, a five-course meal, and, you know, it's like a nice cheeseburger. I mean, I love burgers, don't get me wrong, but it's not, you know, the five-course meal would be flat tax, would be a one-page tax code, would be some of the things that I'm old enough to remember because it was in the last election, everybody, the Republicans were talking about and actually saying they were going to do. I remember Ted Cruz talking about how they were going to abolish the IRS. Remember? Yep. Tyrone remembers. Amy remembers. Te- yeah. Tax code would fit on a post-it note. Remember? So this is a... I'm not trying to be you know, the tax code Grinch here, although that probably would make sense too. Uh, I'm just... I remember what we were promised, folks. I remember what you and I, those of us who are conservatives, were told could happen with a Republican House and Senate and presidency, and it's not what we're getting. So, you know, you can they can tell me a lot of things about how, oh, no, can't do that, can't do that. Well, how about a little truth in advertising there, GOP? But, yeah, like I said, if they get this tax bill through, I'll take the cheeseburger. I'll take it. Uh, we'll talk about net neutrality. Oh, my gosh. Coming up. I dissent from this rash decision to roll back net neutrality rules. I dissent from the corrupt process that has brought us to this point. And I dissent from the contempt this agency has shown our citizens in pursuing this path today. This decision puts the Federal Communications Commission on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of the law, and the wrong side of the American public. The future of the internet is the future of everything. The apocalyptic rhetoric is quite something, even by Washington standards. No, the FCC is not ending the internet, or as President Obama's first Federal Trade Commission chairman recently put it, the sky isn't falling, consumers will remain protected, and the internet will flourish. What we're doing with today's vote is reversing a two-year-old decision and returning to a tried-and-true regulatory framework, one that we know from our own experience works for consumers and for innovation. In early 2015, the FCC, under political pressure, jettisoned the successful bipartisan approach to the Internet. On express orders from the previous White House, the FCC scrapped the tried-and-true light-touch regulation of the Internet and replaced it with heavy-handed micromanagement. It decided to subject the Internet to utility-style regulation designed in the 1930s to govern Ma Bell. This decision was a mistake. For one thing, there was no problem to solve. The Internet wasn't broken in 2015. We were not living in some digital dystopia. You get three different FCC commissioners. You get three different answers, my friends. Buck Sexton here with you now. Net neutrality. Woo! Big deal today. People were uh, all kinds of upset about this. In fact, there was an FCC meeting on net neutrality that had to be adjourned because of a bomb threat. We have audio of this, don't we? Play it. 
on advice of security, we need to take a brief recess. Everyone, I need everyone to leave everything that you have in place. Do not take anything out of here except for your body. Yep, they had to abandon that down on Capitol Hill. So people take this debate very seriously. There are Democrats and leftists who say that the rollback by a 3-2 decision of the FCC, the Federal Communication Commission today, of the Obama-era net neutrality decision is a catastrophic thing for the Internet and for the digital world as we are coming to know it. And then there are a lot of other people who are like, "Uh, hold on a second. The Internet was okay." As you heard Ajit Pai there, that was the last soundbite that we played for you, who was an an FCC chairman. He's like, look, the Internet was doing great until 2015 – it wasn't a problem. So why the Obama administration feel the need to step in and fix it? Look, there are a couple of different and I'm not a I'm not somebody who gets too deep in the weeds of the technology uh, regulatory debate within net neutrality that much. Um, but I have been spending a lot of time this week researching. It's why I've waited to talk to you about it until I've really made sure that I had some clarity on the subject or at least clarity on what the debates currently are. And here is what I can tell you. Uh, On the one hand, there is just a, and this is without even getting the technology aspect of it, there's those who believe the government should have a hand in, a stronger hand in regulating everything, including technology, versus, versus those who have a more free market libertarian approach. The Obama administration decision means that the internet for, for the purposes of federal law and federal regulation, is a utility. So it is similar to the laws about uh, phone lines back in the day. It's similar to the laws that govern water and electricity getting to your house. Right? That that's what the Internet should be treated like. That was the Obama administration's decision. That is what net neutrality means from a regulatory standpoint. And then... You get into, and I think this is probably where there's more of the heat in the discussion. For example, you get people like Bernie Sanders tweeting out, this is an egregious attack on our democracy. The end of net neutrality means that the Internet will be for sale to the highest bidder. When our democratic institutions are already in peril, we must do everything we can to stop this decision from taking effect. That was Bernie Sanders' tweet read by me. So... Yeah, it's an egregious attack on democracy, he says. Okay, this is a city U.S. senator who was number two in line for the Democrat nomination for the presidency last time around. So, yeah, there's that. But then you get into the competitive versus anti-competitive, monopoly versus anti-monopoly side of the discussion as well. Here's kind of how that goes. There is a concern among those who see the the macro trends, and this is an interesting day to have this discussion as well, because Disney just gobbled up uh, 21st Century Fox, or is in the process of merging with 21st Century Fox. But there are these companies that are ISPs, Internet Service Providers. And I know this can sound kind of boring, but it affects all of us, right? You all have Internet. You're listening to this show. You might be listening on the Internet, but... You probably watch Netflix, you get your cable, you know, this is all, your, your, your phone runs off your Wi-Fi at home probably. I mean, all this stuff is important to us in a day-to-day sense. 
Unless you're living way off the grid, in which case, I suppose you're listening to the show on old school radio, and thank you for that. Uh, but for for a vast majority of us, this does have some real importance. This really does matter. And here's where the big concern comes in for most folks. And we're going to have a, a technology reporter who covers mostly this issue joining us in just a few minutes so you can hear her perspective on it. But here's what I see. People are worried that you're going to have mega corporations, uh, gigantism among companies. That will mean that there is an anti-competitive uh, advantage, a monopolistic advantage that places like Comcast, which now currently gives you your Internet service in some places and you have no choice uh, or whatever the Internet service provider in your area may be. You may not have a choice. They are also now merging with companies that do content and that have platforms that they are trying to grow and that compete with other platforms, right? So you get Comcast owns Hulu. Hulu's competing with Netflix. You have a lot of joining together of these different companies and corporations. That means that you will have one place or one company that will own the delivery mechanism for your content literally the ability for you to get internet and will also be in a position to determine how well you get different parts of the internet. This is what they call throttling. So do you get Hulu or Netflix? Okay. Well, if Hulu is owned by the company that gives you your internet service, it may mean that Netflix is a lot slower because obviously then if you have a choice between, and we'll talk more about this with our reporter friend here in a few minutes from CNET. Uh, the other side of this that is also concerning is that you may have new companies that come along that would want to be the challenger to Facebook, that would want to be the challenger to you name it. And if incumbents are able to get cozy enough with the major Internet companies, right, the, the biggest Internet providers, AT&T, Comcast, etc., then... You have a situation where the Internet, which has been such a massive laboratory so far of innovation, might be in a position where the big companies say, well, that little that little social network that's coming along, make sure that their traffic, they're competing with us. So we want their traffic to be one tenth as fast as ours. You know, we want their Internet speed to be one tenth our speed. And that's the concern that hasn't really happened yet, though. But that is the concern. Those who say those who are faced with the it hasn't happened yet argument say, well, yeah, but it's going to start happening because digital plat digital content platforms and Internet delivery services are merging. And that's why this is a bigger issue. All right, and then there's one more. <laughs> and then there's another level we got to put onto this. But let me tell you, it doesn't mean the world is not ending. And the most, uh, you know, I, I think it's not a, a be all end all argument, but the. The Internet was fine before the Obama administration came along in 2015 does keep this in a certain context. OK, this is not the end of the world, no matter what. This is a long term philosophical Internet and, and innovation discussion. But innovation is a key part of all this, too. As you're sitting here listening to me now, I'm sure many of you are listening on smartphones, smart devices, and you probably have a cellular service plan. I'm old enough to remember. I'm sure some of you are, too. I'm old enough to remember that. Um, you know, it used to be that your cell phone plan was if you went over minutes, you were in a lot of trouble. But sure enough, now 
your cell plan's gotten a whole lot better, right? Maybe the internet can get a lot better. Maybe internet providers will be much more competitive, and maybe there's a way, if we dereg, if we continue the deregulated atmosphere of the internet, the internet will be like your cell service plan, which is way cheaper and way better than it ever used to be. All right, we're going to have our friend join us from CNET in a second here, but first... All right, so what is net neutrality all about? Why do so many people seem to think that this is, as, as CNN put it on its front page today, the end of the Internet as we know it? And I feel fine. Uh, Maggie Reardon is with us now. She is a CNET senior reporter. She's been covering net neutrality for years. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so um, give, can you give me a... A short. I know we. I could ask you about this, and you could talk about it for a couple hours, right? Give me the the right. sixty second spiel for what is this net neutrality fight all about? So, really, the the fight at the center of it is about um, the FCC's authority to regulate the internet. You know, and you know, do they have the authority to put in place some rules that will tell uh, broadband companies um, who are in many cases monopolists? that they can't do certain things like block your your access to certain content, slow things down, or uh, charge other companies like uh, a Google or a Facebook extra fees to access customers quicker. Um, so that's really what the debate is about. And, and we've got Republicans who are in charge now, and they're all about deregulation, and they don't think that there should be um, – that the FCC really should have the authority to to regulate the internet, and they they'd rather it be kind of open. And if there's any problem, we'll let the Federal Trade Commission deal with so it. So, can I ask you some of the the assertions? I'll turn them into questions, but assertions that I see out there from the anti. Uh, net, oh, wait, I'm trying to make sure I get this right. Yes, from the from those who are pro net neutrality, rather. Um, they okay. will say things like, now the Internet, and you know, John Oliver had a big campaign about this on his show on HBO. There's a lot of celebrities that are involved. This has become a cause, right? This has become something beyond just a technology, a, a simple technology and regulation debate. Uh, people say things like, well, now the Internet could be $100 a day for you because it's a, there, there might be a monopoly. There's only one provider in your area. What's the truth of that? Well, I, I think a lot of these claims are, are just a, a tad bit overblown, right? Like the Internet's not going to break tomorrow. Um, but I think that there is definitely legitimate reasons to be concerned. Um, when you have companies that, uh, that not only control your access to the Internet, but they also are getting into the content business. So you have Comcast that owns NBC. You've got AT&T trying to buy Time Warner. You've got Verizon, which owns Yahoo and some other properties, you know, they are now also competing alongside of Google and Facebook and Twitter for advertising revenue and and for eyeballs, you know, for consumers. So, you know, that's a concern when you have a big company that, you know, and and half the households in America only have one um, choice for Internet. In fact, um, Commissioner Rosenworcel, who's a Democrat, actually said in a press conference today that she lives in Washington, D.C., and she's like, I only have one choice. <laughs> and so if my provider decides to monkey with my traffic, I don't have a choice to go someplace else. And and that really is what the question is here is you don't, you know, we don't want a situation where you have um, companies that are large and powerful um, dictating 
people's access. So, to so the for the for the folks at home, internet. just so I can bring this back down to the the day to day, right? Because I think people who are net neutrality right. and well, it's funny actually because some people were completely freaking out today about it, like a nuclear war had been declared. But generally, most folks who were doing other things were like, okay, net neutrality, how much does this matter or not matter? And so for those listening, it could mean that if your Internet service provider is Comcast and Comcast owns what Hulu, right? Now, all of a sudden, when you go to watch something on your smart TV, Comcast could decide, you know what? We want Hulu to just start beating out Netflix for market share. So you want to turn on Hulu and watch The Strain, for example, which I do watch on Hulu. It's going to be crystal clear, perfect HD. You go to your Netflix, though, in the Comcast areas, and all of a sudden it's going to be kind of fuzzy, like you're watching a TV from the early 90s. Is that possible? Is that something we should be worried it's about, Maggie? Possible. And you know what's interesting is it's already happening to some degree. You've already got... Um, companies like uh, like AT and T, for example, that owns um, Directv, they are offering their Directv service over um, their wireless network to customers, and they're not charging um, anybody. You know, they're not. Uh, that doesn't count against your data. Well, that you know, if you were going to try to stream Netflix, it does count against your data. So, you know, they're already picking winners and losers. Now, to the average consumer. Some folks might say, well, that's fine. Like, I like that DirecTV is not going to count against my data. But what it really does is it starts to, over time, limit your choices, right? So then maybe not as many people will subscribe to a service like Netflix or whatever the new, new startup is. And so then you have fewer choices. And what ends up happening... And, and this is why, again, this isn't something that is, you know, tomorrow everything's going to be apocalyptic on the Internet. This is something that's going to take time um, to really play out and, and see where the industry goes. But we could find ourselves in a situation in five or, or maybe even ten years where the Internet looks very different than it does today, where it's more curated and you've got big companies that control Uh, pretty much where you go and what you see online. We're speaking to Maggie Reardon, who's a senior reporter at CNET. She covers issues of technology, including net neutrality. Uh, Maggie, what do you say to those who point out that the Internet didn't, that that these new regulations are new, that this wasn't the case until 2015 when the Obama administration decided we're going to now, under Title II, treat Internet providers like a telecommunication company, which means there's greater regulatory power for the federal government it seems to me like the Internet was fine till 2015, so what's the big deal? Um, you know, they're right. <laughs> you know, there wasn't this, um, the FCC didn't have the authority to regulate Internet um, like a utility until 2015. So they're absolutely right. Um, you know, again, that's why I don't think that things are going to fall apart all of a sudden. Um, but I do think what, what most people would agree on is that sort of those basic rules of no blocking, no throttling, that those, you know, we should have some rules of the road. And um, is, Do you think transparency is enough? I know that's a, that's a big part of this discussion, right? That, it, that if, I don't not to pick on Comcast, although why not, if Comcast is throttling Netflix for the benefit of Hulu, that would be okay, but they would have to disclose to their customers, hey, we're slowing down your Netflix on purpose. Do you think that would take care of the problem? Because then the market would at least have the information or the people in the market would have the information to make informed decisions. Yeah, I don't think that transparency is going to be enough. You know, it seems like we need to have real rules of the road here and that um, this might be something that Congress needs to step in and clarify. 
All right. Maggie Reardon, everybody. CNET senior reporter. She's been covering net neutrality. Check out her latest at CNET.com. Maggie, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, team. We are going to come back. And I, I, if you have strong thoughts on net neutrality, by all means, I would love to hear them. Uh, because a, a lot of, like, millennials are like, oh, but guys, like, net neutrality, man, it's going to destroy the world, bro. It's like all of a sudden corporations and, like, and, you know, Dick Cheney and Halliburton and all the bad things, man. People seem very energized about this, and a lot of them don't know anything, but... If you have thoughts on net neutrality, one way or the other, I'd, I'd be happy to hear them. If you're also like Buck, net neutrality is boring. Thanks for t- touching on it as a topic. We're going to waste more time on it. That's fine too, because um, I, I think it's a I think it's a little overblown right now. It's more of a long term. This is really an internet philosophy discussion as much as it is a government regulation discussion. But uh, we will go into a quick break here. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. We will be right back. Hey team, if you don't mind, I'd like to take a step back from serious policy and national security and other discussions for a moment to just just have have a little discussion about what's going on with uh, Miss Omarosa Manigault uh, because I didn't know much about the story, so we're just gonna have a little fun here and just talk about this little gossipy. I know it's not a gossip show, but I didn't know much about this, and the more I'm seeing this, this is this is getting airtime. On all all different news channels. Now, look, we're going to the end of the year, and they're running. And there's only so many times you can be like, taxes are going to be amazing. Yeah, I know. We'll talk about taxes in a few moments. Don't worry, we'll get there. But this Amarosa thing is is definitely getting some attention. And what I find interesting are some of the folks who I didn't realize she was so despised. I just picked up on some of this earlier today. So, uh, for example, here is, and and I should note, despised specifically within the. African-American community and by some high-profile African-American celebrities, including, for example, Whoopi Goldberg. I hope you find something to do, oh. <laughs> I do, I do. And I hope that you find your people, because maybe they're looking for you. Because <laughs> um, the ones you refer to are not checking on you. She's just been so nasty to so many women and so many women of color. Yes. You know, so many women of color. And I just, you know, never mind. And then you get Robin Roberts over at uh, what? The Today Show, right? Or NBC News? What? what? Good morning. Sorry. Whoops. Good morning, America. Not the Today. The the thing that is not the Today Show. Uh, And she had some stuff to say, too. She said this. And yeah, the fourth, fourth time could be the charm. Yeah, so she said she has a story to tell, and I'm sure she'll be selling that story. We'll see. Well, yeah, she will. Bye, Felicia. Now to a new study. Okay, now first, uh, Tyrone, bye, Felicia there. That is a, that was not a friendly remark. No, no, not at all. <laughs> Explain it. Well, what was the bye, Felicia there from, uh, from Robin Roberts to Amorosa? <laughs> there, in the movie Friday with uh, Ice Cube and Chris Tucker from the late 90s, there was a character named Felicia who was kind of a freeloader. And whenever she would ask for things, the way to get rid of her, you would say, bye, Felicia. Uh-huh. And that has since um, in black Twitter and things like that, it's a big thing to say, bye, Felicia. So it is a, it is a, it is a kick in the, uh, yes. on the way out the door, right? Yes. Okay. All right. Just so we're all clear on that. And then Whoopi Goldberg. I didn't, I didn't know much about it because I didn't watch The Apprentice. I went through a whole period where I, was, I didn't own a TV for, I don't know, Five, five or six years, probably. Uh, I didn't watch The Apprentice. 
I didn't own a TV of any kind, smart TV, nothing. I wasn't even just a, cu- a cord cutter. I did not own a television, um, which I used to like to say on radio a lot, and then people got annoyed with me saying it all the time. But but Tyrone, what is – why is she so – like, why does Whoopi Goldberg hate Omarosa? And then we'll, then we'll get into, like, the whole White House, does she still work for them or not thing. But. It, for whatever reason, and she's been public a public figure for a long time, for whatever reason, it seems like – and I'm saying this to – this is millions of black people who think this. This isn't just me. Whenever Omarosa has something nice to say about a person, that person is Caucasian. And whenever she has something negative to say about a person, that person is always black. And that's how she was on all the reality shows. And I guess that's the way she was able to stand out. But people kind of are tired of it because when she needed help, like she dated the actor who had passed away, Michael Clark Duncan. They were engaged. When he passed away, she kind of came to the black community for support. And then as soon as she could, she's now in public talking bad about a black person. Just that's just what she does. And what is the latest on her status in terms of the White House and the stories you're talking about yesterday? My my understanding is that she was not Secret Service says they didn't remove her, but they did pull her creds to get into some parts of the White House and maybe she had words with Kelly and maybe, you know, what, what do we know? It, that that apparently is the story. But April Ryan standing by her reporting that she was physically removed. So maybe it wasn't Secret Service who removed her, but she did not go willingly and someone had to physically remove her. It may not have been Secret Service. It could have been a former co-worker. It could have been another staffer. Just because it wasn't Secret Service who removed her doesn't mean she wasn't removed. Now, do you think that it was just Kelly Got, was this a personality thing where Kelly, General Kelly was like, I- I'm done with this? I think it's that. And there are people who think that some of the reason um, so there are some people, I will say, who don't love the volume of President Trump's tweets. I think that's fair to say that some people don't love that. <laughs> Definitely some people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm saying I think it's fair to say that there are some conservatives who don't love that. And there are a word out of there. The rumor now is that. She goes in and instigates the president and causes a lot of those tweet storms that aren't on message. So they're trying to talk to the president about taxes, let's say. Omarosa comes in the room and wants to talk about anything else. And that's what the president ends up tweeting because apparently he does like her personally. This is pretty amazing that that she has that level of access to the president of the United States. I was reading this. She just walk in the Oval Office and be like, Mr. President, blah, blah, blah. Yes, and that would lead to, at least they claim at times, some of the, you're like, not just, okay, people overreact to the tweets, just why did he tweet about that? Omarosa. Oh, my God. She was the why. Omarosa tied into the whole tweet storm thing. Because I will say, and you know that I support the administration, I'm I'm trying to help the president and hoping for the agenda to work. Some days, though, I see the tweet storm and I'm just like, what is that? It's her. Uh, apparently a good <laughs> it's, it's her. At least some of it. Now here's the weird part. I know we said it was it's gossip this segment, but Sarah Huckabee Sanders had to answer questions. Well, this is policy now. I mean, when you're yeah. talking about a woman who's getting the president to put out pronouncements from Twitter and who's now being removed from the White House one way, I mean, this is this matters actually. Right, like she had to answer questions. And what's funny is there are times where Sarah Huckabee Sanders make it very clear she doesn't want to answer the question. She kind of I had to like she kind of went on about it like this is a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> like this is a real thing. She was causing 
drama. She calls it on television, multiple seasons of The Apprentice. She's caused it with, she, she told people that they were going to have to bow down to President Trump, and that turned a lot of people off because you don't bow to a president and that kind of thing. And it's like she can't read a room. How did she manage to stay somewhat under the media radar? I mean, because like she I wasn't hearing a lot. I mean, you heard about it in the beginning, right, when they were bringing people into the White House. But then there wasn't a lot of talk of Amarosa for quite a while here. But now it's sounding like I, I didn't realize she was walking in and talking to the president, in the Oval Office, whenever and however. Well, they say that that's kind of all she did because she was supposed to supposed to be in charge of black outreach. She didn't do any black outreach. Look what just happened with the, the election in Alabama. 98 to 2 among black women. Black women. Amarosa is a black woman. The president endorses a candidate. Get to Alabama and try to get some. Remember, this is 20,000 votes. If a couple, you know. Yeah, you don't have to win a lot to win, the, to win that election. 98 to 2. Trump, was. those numbers were not that stark. Just this past November, you fast forward 13 months, and it's among black women. Amarosa's a black woman. 98 to 2. So. She didn't do any outreach. She just was in the office talking trash, apparently. <laughs> Twitter tr- Twitter trash talking. Oh, gosh. All right. Well, I, I guess uh, they're gonna have to. They're gonna have to replace. Are they gonna replace the position? Do we know yet? I don't think so. You don't think so? There, there's no word that it. And then what I don't care for is Amarosa on her Good Morning America thing plays the race card. She's not allowed to do that. <laughs> she's not allowed to play that card because she's the one who's been telling black people that that stuff isn't real. But when it happens to her, it's very real. No, 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 no. That that's not allowed. You're like, like you're not. She's not allowed, and she turned off more people. And that's why that reaction is because she would tell Whoopi Goldberg or anyone else that would listen that they can't say that. And then as soon as she could, she's still getting paid by the White House right now. And still this morning, she played the race card. Isn't she also saying that she's got? Uh, I saw the 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 poll quote from earlier today. You know, like a profound story to tell about the White House. I mean, she's basically threatening a tell-all, isn't she? No, she's definitely, she's shopping a tell-all book. Already. I mean, might be interesting. (laughs) It might be interesting to see. Listen, I'll be honest. I don't love the woman. I'll buy the book. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it sounds like she's not afraid to... uh, to burn some bridges, but all right. So a senior one, one more senior advisor from the White House gone. Tyrone, thank you for all that. I, I did. There are many more layers to this story about Amarosa's uh, exit slash dismissal slash you know however it's being uh, reported. So there, there you have it, everybody. White House intrigue. It is like it is like an episode of The Apprentice. I mean, I don't know that that's what's going on here. Trump's White House, in some ways, feels a little bit like. You know, he didn't tell it you fired, but but he could have. And that's what's going on there. All right. We'll we'll talk about taxes a little bit. What's Marco's play here? I think it's actually interesting. I haven't heard Marco Rubio's name come up much recently. Right. Marco's been I think he's still been recovering from the whole little Marco fiasco with Trump. It was he was for me just in terms of of election performance. I feel like Marco was the biggest disappointment. You know. Cruz was Cruz. He did his thing, and he was up against a phenomenon. But Marco, you know, he he stepped into the ring, and he lasted like five seconds. I mean, it was not, I mean, metaphorically speaking, it was it was not much of a challenge. When it was his turn to uh, to at least tangle with the Donald, but Marco's back, and he's getting some play because he 
wants a uh, more money for the child tax credit and the tax reform. So we'll talk about that and some other stuff in the next hour that I will get to. So stay with me. So I don't watch the Today Show. I don't watch any of those uh, morning shows. Occasionally, I'll watch Morning Joe for like three minutes just so I can see him ignore everybody around him and say nothing of substance or interest, but somehow, and, and wear like a, a sweatshirt from that he picked up from Nantucket over the weekend, and th- they're paying this guy $5 million a year to do this and for reasons that are be- with bad ratings, and it's always had bad ratings, so for reasons that are beyond my comprehension. Uh, but I have, for a long time now, said to all of you who will listen that one of the interesting, uh, one of the interesting phenomena of the media business is that you have some of these legacy institutions like NBC, The Today Show, been around a long time, have a huge, have had a huge competitive advantage in the marketplace, both because of duration and name recognition of the enterprise, as well as in case of broadcast networks, you know, they were on everyone out of TV you could get them. Uh, but Matt Lauer was the highest paid, and there's a lot of stuff coming out about Lauer. And I want to have, I'm doing a, a short segment here with you, Onyx. I'm sure there's only so much we or you care about this, right? But Matt Lauer was the highest paid guy in television, $25 million a year. I believe Judge Judy was actually higher. She wasn't in TV news. I think she made more than that for a few years, which is crazy. Judge Judy was, she was making a fortune. Judge Judy was making a lot of money. But and but Judge Judy was good. I, you know, I liked her show. I thought she was spunky and, and, uh, and entertaining. Uh, Matt Lauer at $25 million a year, and I'm I'm not even gonna really have well I'll have a couple minutes to get into the latest sexual harassment allegations, but uh, he was getting paid twenty five million a year and he got fired for all I, I'm not even up on all the sexual misconduct but there's a lot of it you know just this guy was sleeping with women threatening women's careers who wouldn't sleep with them sleeping with you know assaulting women I mean just there the allegations are myriad a lot of them. But Lauer gets fired. He's making 25 mil a year. And since he's fired, the ratings on the Today Show go up. So someone explain this to me. How was this jerk worth worth $25 million a year? Uh, what, what executive made that brilliant decision? He's gone. So he's no longer a part of the Today Show enterprise. And it's not that the ratings even stayed the same. They are up. More people want to watch the Today Show now that he's gone. So this is where you start to wonder, like, how is this possible? I should note that uh, a while ago, a similar situation, there's no sexual assault allegations or anything like that. But I think Bob Schieffer was the it took over after Dan Rather had to leave CBS. Because remember the whole fake news thing at CBS News with Dan Rather, the National Guard documents? Um they replaced Bob. They replaced him with Bob Schieffer, and then they brought in Katie Couric, whom they paid fourteen million dollars a year to to do that. And the ratings tanked, and she was her ratings were always worse than Schieffer's. And Schieffer was getting paid a fraction of what they're paying Katie Couric. So it, it's just a guessing game, and it's really about how much the executives who have these legacy media institutions think someone should get paid, and that's what they get paid because the advertising revenue for the show is. 200 million a year, 300 million a year, whatever it is. And someone just gets to determine, you know, what they have to pay talent. And there's really not a lot of accountability. 
And with the Today Show, I, I just think it's astonishing that this guy was so highly paid. And, and what better test can you have than he's gone and it doesn't matter? In fact, it's better. Better off. They could have saved themselves 25 mil a year by just not having Matt Lauer on the show at all, apparently. Um, and it just goes to show you. I mean, he was protected from from on high with an NBC. That's what this really was. That's why he was paid what he was paid. That's why he was able to keep the job that he kept. That's why he was able to chase away any rivals. Anyone who could have done his job, who was uh, up and coming, made sure that they got shown the door. Because uh, what Andy Lack, I think it is, over at NBC was, and before that, it was Jeff Zucker, very close with, uh, with Lauer, and they may, they get to decide. And people in this business, their careers rise and fall based upon the the whims of these executives. So that's one thing I think about Matt Lauer. It's interesting, and and the other is that the stories that come out about this guy are. So over the line and uh, so grotesque. And I just think it's interesting. You got Katie Couric, who built a huge career on. I'm not even sure what exactly. I I don't know what Katie Couric's particular skill is other than just endurance in the industry. Probably, you know, making sure that she was friendly with the right people. It's true of a lot of people in news business, male and female. Uh, I'm not really sure what her particular skill is, but she's saying that she will respond to the whole Matt Lauer situation when she feels like she can, when she can handle it. This is now the new tactic because we've gotten wise to the, I had no idea. I had no idea any of this was going on. You know, we've heard this from some of the, well, it's like Savannah Guthrie and some of the others. You know, I had never heard such a thing. Please. People knew. They covered up for him. Because they like their privileged position. They like the big paychecks. They like being famous. And they have no morals or scruples. And the little people along the way, so-called little people, those who are just trying to make a, make a living, just trying to show up, not get fired, keep a job, pay their rent. Particularly in this case, the females that would do that on the Today Show and other places where they worked with Lauer, they are uh, sacrificed. And the women who could say something and stand up, people like Katie Couric, I, I think that there should be much more opprobrium. There should be much more uh, of, a, of a public hearing, if you will, about their lack of courage. You know, those who could have said something and said nothing. And when I mean could have, I don't mean, oh, they could have been brave and spoken out. I mean, like, Katie Couric is a multi-multi-millionaire who wasn't going anywhere in the business. She could have said something, but she didn't. Flower. Man, you know what it is, too? I'm not going to lie to you guys. Never liked that guy. I don't know him, but never liked him on TV. Never liked his persona. Always thought it was just a just a construct. Like, yeah, this is the guy that you all have to watch on television because he's so good. At what? At what? I need someone to explain this to me. But then again, I think most of the really famous comedians these days aren't funny. So that's right. Bah humbug buck. Uh, I'll be right back, everybody. Stay with me. It's not over till it's over, but it's really, really close. We're hearing some really good things last night and this morning off of the Hill. Um, what will happen, we think, now is that it will be, should be reported out today, uh, which should give both the House and the Senate a chance to vote on Monday and Tuesday of next week, and that's when it would be over. But it sounds like uh, they made a great deal of progress in the last 24, 48 hours, and we're very close to a finished deal. That was Budget Director Mick Mulvaney. We got a few days here, folks, for taxes. Will your taxes go down? Will the economy get a big old boost from better tax rate, better corp, more competitive corporate tax rate? Will this help make the economy great again? Although the economy is already really good, 
I mean, by all the standards we have to judge it, I think there's some bubbles that are in place. I think there's uh, plenty of reason to have a bit of trepidation about where this is all heading in the future. But, you know, in the meantime, it's pretty good, right? Unemployment super low, stock market super high. If you want to you want a wild uh, wild ride, you can invest in some Bitcoin, see what happens. I mean, you know, uh, people say it could be up 10x in a year or two. People say it could go to zero. So who knows? A lot of stuff going on with the economy, though. And I would note that this tax bill should be very helpful. And uh, I, I've, I try to maintain some degree of skepticism about it because I think that in our particularly tribal political culture right now, there's a sense of, you know, everything good or everything bad, depending on which side of the aisle you sit on. And I say, look, if it's if, when it comes to when it comes to what I'm going to be writing Uncle Sam a check for or what I'm not, I, I pay attention. And I don't want to hear about how it's great based upon what's good for the party. I want to know, like, what's coming out of Buck's meager bank account. Uh, so they're close to a tax deal. Here's what we've got in this that you, you will probably... Uh, be hearing about in the days uh, days ahead. You've got the corporate tax rate dropping down. We've already talked about that a million times. Uh, you also are going to have the top individual rate lowered to 37% from 39.5%. Um, but there's that. And then you also have a compromise that people can deduct up to $10,000 for state and local taxes. The so-called SALT deduction will still be in there. Because that's a spicy Amita ball. Salt deduction. Um, and then you've got, what else do you have here? Uh, $87 billion. Oh, yeah. And then you got the, the uh-oh, the last minute, the last minute whoopsie, which is Rubio. He may have a problem with this. And uh, he wants the child tax credit to get bigger. And here is what Sarah Huckabee Sanders during the White House press conference earlier today had to say about it. We're really proud of the work that we've done already up until this point with Senator Rubio already doubling the child tax credit, taking it to $2,000 per child. We're going to continue working with the senator, but we think we've made great strides and frankly, pretty historic uh, movement in terms of the child tax credit. We're very proud of that work. We're going to keep working with them until we get the job done, which we still expect to happen uh, before the end of the year. Is there more room to move? Uh, Right now, we're going to focus on letting some of the Senate uh, move forward in the progression of their conversations. Um, Again, we're extremely excited about the progress that we've already made to double the child tax credit. I think that's something important to note uh, and something that we've worked very closely with Senator Rubio on. And we think he should be very excited about the progress we've made on that front. So right now, the child tax credit, as it would be in this bill, be $1,100. Rubio says it has to be higher than that. And look, I talked to you and Tyrone reminded me of this in the break. Or what was it? Maybe last week about how the child tax credit should absolutely be something that people who are talking about the need for uh, a revitalization of the not just the American economy, but American demographics. Right. That the American people need to perpetuate themselves to propagate themselves as a society by actually having the next generation be born here, be Americans, not just importing the next round of Americans. Right. That that, that if that's a, a place where you are 
in general, if, if you think that that's important to the country, then isn't it maybe worth having a discussion about this? I think I think Rubio is actually in the got got the right idea with this. Um, it'll be helping people who have kids pay their bills and encouraging because the tax code. Look, we're not on a flat tax. We're not on a fair tax. Still a lot of social engineering and social policy that the tax code is engaged in. So if that's the world we're going to be operating in, and it is for the foreseeable future, encouraging people to have kids and encouraging people to be able to afford for the rearing or afford the rearing of those children seems to me to be a worthwhile thing, right? If we're going to have people freaking out about state and local taxes, which <laughs> Tyrone's shaking his head, yes, I know, homeowner, we got a homeowner here, not, not me. Amy, you're a renter, right? Yeah, and I'll be renting forever. I'm never going to own anything. Like, yeah, own the clothing I wear. That's about it. Um, but Tyrone's a homeowner. And, uh, yeah, state and local taxes, we gotta, we got to help them out for political reasons, right? you got to help out the state and local uh, blue state folks uh, who are homeowners. But on the child tax credit side, it seems like a worthwhile thing to me. And it's only, what are we talking, $87 billion if you made it fully, making the child tax credit fully refundable will cost $87 billion over 10 years. Um, now they're saying that's a lot. I don't know. It doesn't by federal government budget standards doesn't sound like a lot to me. So that's the last uh, hitch as I see it here for this bill. And I think Rubio will probably get it. They're going to vote on Monday and Tuesday. You got Republicans with 52 seats. Pence could jump in if there's a 50 50 tie. Uh, they already lost Bob Corker. And he sounds like he's still not going to be in there for this one. The only other possible issue they may have would be uh, Susan Collins. And she has expressed problems with lowering the top rate. So Susan Collins is playing a little bit of class warrior up there in Maine, you know, can't have the top rate drop from 39.6 to 37 percent. Uh, so there's that. So she she may be a stumbling block, but probably not. What do you think about all this? Taxes. Woo, we're having a tax discussion. It's a tax party. Bust out your abacus. Uh, I probably should have said calculator. Abacus, it's like we're in the 4th century BC or something. Wait, who has to go to, what? Oh, Pence didn't go to Israel. So he's, we got Pence, like, he's like the kicker who's warming up, kicking it into a little, what do they call that? The little netting, right? What is it just the, Kicker netting? Okay, well, <laughs> there's no special term for that. Just making sure, Tyrone. Making sure. Uh, Brent in New Mexico on the iHeart app. What's up, buddy? Brent. Brent, you want to talk well, taxes. And oh, There we go. Hey, buddy. Yes, sir. Um, no, on a side note, Andrew McCarthy's the man. Yeah, I he's great. First on your show. He, he, he could I, be like I, a character. Look- he could be one of the good guys in Law & Order. You know what I mean? Absolutely. He's the only reason I go to the NRO. Uh, Char- your other guy, Charles, uh, the British guy. And anyway, he's cool too. Oh, but, Charles, uh, Charles anyway, Cook. Yes, Charles is great. Go ahead, sir. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, no, I I don't want to debate you on this because you shred me. But I kind of want to play devil's advocate. I I kind of think the Republicans are up against the wall on this whole tax thing anyway. I mean, they're having to pass this thing to reconciliation, which means it has to be budget neutral. So they're having to do this whole corporate tax rate thing, cut stuff on the side where they can pass it. And there's no way you're going to get seven to nine Democrats to pass 
something for the middle income tax bracket, regardless, because that's too much money. And, no, and if, if that passed, Trump would cruise to 2020. You know what I mean? It's like a double-edged sword there. I just don't understand how they could get it done and keep it in budget, cutting taxes for everybody, because that's, that's where the meat and potatoes is. And even if they did it, they tell you they're coming after your Social Security your Medicare. Yeah, well, this is, Brent, I think we actually have a lot of, we we line up a lot in our concerns and, 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 uh, and possible criticisms of how this is all going down here, because yeah, the notion that, that, you know, they're, they're kind of tying their own hands and saying, see, look, I can't do anything about this, right? That they have to pass this. They set it up so that future spending is out of their hands, right? That's what they're saying, because they're saying that spending is essentially baked into the cake. It has to be budget neutral. Says who? They make the budget. This is kind of nonsense. This is a trick, right? Do you see what I mean about how they're tying their own hands? The the, the Congress, so that they won't have to, because neither side wants to deal with the fact that we are spending ourselves into oblivion and that younger generations, and people like to hear this, are paying for current generations' health care. That is what is going on. And future generations are going to pay for current generations' much lesser health care and probably Social Security benefits. So right now, there's a political incentive to push this off into the future and say, oh, we can't do anything about it because it has to be budget neutral. They write, they're the ones making the budget, right? They're, they're literally making rules for themselves and then saying, well, sorry, because of that rule, we can't do anything about it. So that's, that's just one thing to keep in mind here. And yeah, I've been saying all along, this should yeah, be focused. Buck, I'm sorry. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, but Buck, that's the only way. The, in order to get it to reconciliation, they can get 51 votes. If you want to disregard the budget, they have to get 60, right? Yeah, but what I'm saying is they, they, could, they could cut spending and make more room for other things, but they won't touch it, right? So, so they're creating the artificial constraint. I, I understand what you're saying, which is that they can't add to the budget, and that's why it has to be done if, if they wanted it with 51 votes instead of 60. But the point I'm making is that if they're willing to deal with the fact that we've got all this spending— they could make room for other things to do in terms of cutting. But also, by the yeah. way, the notion that the spending that they currently have is sacrosanct and that that's just the way it's going to be is crazy because we're $20 trillion in debt. See, this is the, the problem all along has been that we, we are in a, a push-pull situation. Everybody wants tax cuts, or at least everyone on the right wants tax cuts, and a lot of Democrats do too. They're just lying about it. And nobody wants spending to be cut because that's not popular. You know, we want Santa Claus. We want free stuff or we want more of our stuff that we can keep. But we also want the government to give us stuff on top of that. And this is a this is a situation that's not going to get resolved anytime soon, because right now what's popular? Cut some taxes, keep spending a lot until we deal with the spending side of it. This is all just shifting around. That's what's happening. I mean, you're you're telling me right now, Brett, that that's what's being established because we're working within the constraints of the already established budget. We're just shifting around funds from one place to the other and hoping that there will be growth or something that will make up for it, right? Maybe. Maybe. I'm a skeptic. Yeah, I highly doubt it. Yeah, I'm a skeptic. I'll be honest with you. So we'll see. I mean, a lot of the growth, we, when you look at a lot of what's pushing growth right now, it's credit. It's a credit cycle. Credit cycles, if you look at the history of what happens when credit cycles go bad, by the way, is really scary, financially speaking. Uh, so, no, Brett, I, I hear you, man. Look, it's complicated, but... Don't get me too deep into numbers, because I, I do this job because I hate math. Otherwise, I would have worked at a hedge fund, probably. So thanks for calling in. 
Uh, all right, we got a bunch of other calls. Let me get to them, but we'll take a, a quick break here. Look, taxes, people get excited about it. All right, hey, who knew? Here we are, Thursday night. Come out to the coast, have a few laughs, talk taxes. We'll be right back. Are there some areas you can work with President Trump, and what would those be? Well, I think that we have to find any number of areas. I mean, uh, I can, I'm not going to rattle off right now, but I've told and I've consistently said this, even in the primary, that if the president has things on his agenda that I think are good for the people of Alabama, then I'm absolutely going to work there with him. You heard Senator Schumer, the Democratic leader in the Senate, wants uh, Republicans to not vote on tax reform until you get there and you can cast a vote. Just quickly, do you agree with that? Do you think they should wait? Oh, I'm going to just let that play out. I really don't have a position on that. Doug Jones is kind of like, yo, yo, hey, hey, you know, like, like he's up there. I just, I just won this crazy Senate race. I'm a Democrat and uh, I'm trying to seem like a nice, reasonable guy right now. So why don't you just back off? Right. It's Christmas time. (laughs) He's up. I have basically nothing to say on taxes. Stop asking me questions, members of the press. Um, that was that was what I got from that Doug Jones exchange because Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and uh, and also Elizabeth Warren are saying that Republicans shouldn't have their tax vote until Doug Jones is seated. Like <laughs> that's funny. That's funny, Democrats. You're so cute with that. Like yeah, they would do that just because they want to not be able to pass it to make you happy. It's pretty funny. Schumer, I, I almost Schumer is so shameless and so lacking in principles, uh, and same with Warren, that you almost have to respect it. Like there's a party that has to be like Chuck Schumer. Wow, uh, Steve in Massachusetts, W H Y N. What's up, Steve? Hello, sir. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, we can all hear you. Okay. Um, the thing that disturbs me most about the FBI thing. Is um, I, I if I was a congressman asking questions, the questions would be like, um, "What is the you know what is the law involving the destruction of federal evidence? Um, why was the law written? What is the penalty for it? Has anybody ever been prosecuted for it?" Because I know if I destroyed federal evidence, I would be using the Equal Protection Clause and the fact that Hillary destroyed it. Like, what am I doing in jail? You know, I I, I feel like we no longer have laws with penalties anymore. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I I think that anybody who gets caught up in a uh, in a usage of or in a uh, classified information mishandling investigation has a very strong case to make that, look, if Hillary Clinton... Now, it doesn't always work this way in the criminal justice system because they say that every case is different, but you are you okay? It sounds like you're in a wind tunnel there. Um, it's... Uh, oh, we lost him. Oh, it almost cut... Oh, I was going to answer his question. But, okay, I can still answer it. We miss you, buddy. Hope you're okay there. It sounded like he was... Maybe he was uh, on the ski slopes or something. There was a lot of wind. Uh, is it too early for skiing? When did, I, you know, I'm going to tell you guys a little secret right now. And this surprises some folks. I've never been skiing. I've actually never been on a pair of ski. I know Tyrone's jaw just hit the ground. Amy too. Never been skiing. You know, it's one of these things people talk about. I watch these movies where everyone's at like the ski, you know, on the ski slopes and they go to the ski lodge and it's like a party and everything. I'm like, that looks nice. Never experienced that. Never been skiing in my life. This has nothing to do with anything other than I like to share with you. So all of you, because we're buds. Uh, Oh, where was I? Oh yeah, on the... uh, on the way that the law is enforced against Hillary versus everybody else. It's not just Hillary, I should note. There's a lot of 
a lot of disparity between connected Democrats, uh, politically powerful connected Democrats and everybody else. But in the emails with Hillary, that's the most egregious example of it. And it's particularly I think it's a particularly tough pill to swallow for a lot of us that Hillary gets bailed out by the justice system uh, because she's, you know, because of her connections, because she's Hillary. And then like whiplash right after that, the just the same justice system is trying to take down the Trump administration over nothing, over over fantasies, over delusions. That's tough to take. I think for a lot of us, we sit around like, oh, why exactly am I supposed to think that this is okay? Uh, so on taxes, back back to taxes. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, we're going to I think that, I think they're going to get it. I'm going to give you a little bit of optimism here. I think they're going to get this thing done, which would be nice. They got that going for them, which is nice. I think they're going to vote on taxes. They'll get it through. Rubio's little uh, last-minute play here. Credit to Tyrone. He says he thinks it's a good move. I agree with Ty. I think it is a good move. I think Rubio's going to get his way. That way they're going to hold it up over giving people at the low-income side of the scale a little more money to pay their bills when they have a kid. Really, really tough to keep that out when you've already done the whole state. and Like, well, I own a home, so like I should have. And I live in a blue state and I, I have high property taxes and I want to deduct. It's like, well, oh, but those poor people with their children, we're not going to make any exceptions for them. That's that's going to be a tough one. I think Rubio's uh, Rubio's making a smart play here. So he'll probably get his way. I was going to talk to you about DHS Secretary Kirsten Nielsen saying that we're going to have a wall and we're going to have border security and protect the homeland. She's just been sworn in. But I think that might have to wait, perhaps for tomorrow. Because... I know it's only 2017, but we're coming to an end here, and we still don't have a wall. I have not forgotten. You'll notice that my approach to the administration and to the Congress is going to continue to be, you guys promised us some things. I want those things. And I'm going to say that other things are good along the way, but until I get what's promised, I'm going to keep reminding all of them about it. I want to ask some questions, by the way. We're going to switch gears here for a second. Ask some questions about the... Remember the Las Vegas shooting a couple months ago? So little information on it. Why is that? We'll come back to that. Stay with me. Doesn't look like we're going to get any answers about the biggest mass shooting in the in the modern era. I mean, I don't know if there's been ever a bigger one. I think it is the single biggest shooting in this country. And it doesn't look like we're going to find out what really happened with the Las Vegas massacre a couple of months ago. There was a piece today in in CNN where they were saying that we're still in the dark about this. And I I do have to wonder, why is it that we moved on so quickly from the investigation? We have had so little in terms of information shared by the Las Vegas Police Department with the press, maybe, or maybe the press just didn't care. The information's there. I don't know. But you listening and I both know that given that you had over 500 people who were injured, people hit with bullets, people who uh, will never be able to sleep with the same level of, of ease and n- never really be able to shake off what happened to them, and, and then you add to that the scores of people killed and their families and how their lives have been forever changed and the the damage that they have suffered. And you have to wonder, you have to wonder 
why isn't this more of a priority? I'm not doing a conspiracy thing here. And I know that uh, it's it's a, a fine line for some people between asking questions about a really sensitive incident like this, uh, you know, an incident that's so tragic and making it seem like you're just running around and throwing gasoline on the emotional fire here. But I, I just would like to know how it was that Stephen Paddock brought himself to get all those weapons up into that hotel room. No one thought anything, thought anything amiss was going on. Still have no real sense of motive at all. People, generally speaking, and we see this, right? We've seen this with the recent ISIS terrorists here in New York City. Uh, one who was able to kill a number of people with a vehicle, another who was an attempted suicide bomber just earlier this week, wasn't able to kill anybody, but they want everybody to know why they do what they do. So why would Stephen Paddock just leave it completely, uh, completely up for endless inquiry? I mean, maybe that is part of the, of the psychopathy here. Maybe that's the point, is that he's just so full of rage and hatred and, and so dark and has chosen such evil that he'd rather us continue to question it forever. I, I don't think that you're going to hear much about this case in the new year, I feel like the Las Vegas massacre has somehow just faded away entirely from not just the headlines, but from the national discussion. Right? People are just not following up on this. And yeah, it does raise some does raise some concerns for me. I do start to wonder, well, hold on a second. Why would we move on so so quickly, relatively speaking, from this incident when others, uh, when other mass shootings were cl- clearly resonating in the media and and continue to be important areas of discussion and and inquiry for quite a long time? You know, we were told initially that there may in fact be some political motivations for this. None of those have been established yet we steven paddock is a mystery the most that we've heard and recently you had a, a member of the las vegas police department say that he believed that paddock had lost a lot of money and so he was down a lot of but he still was worth i mean his estate uh, according to what i just read today was worth five million bucks so he wasn't bankrupt it's not that he had lost everything and so therefore would want to maybe just take it out on the rest of the world. Uh, he had lost money, but he still had money. So it just does not make sense. Uh, I, I've always thought, and from the earliest days, this has been a, a concern of mine, I have always thought that the uh, legal aspects to this, meaning the lawsuits, there are hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits ongoing after the Las Vegas shooting. That's one of the reasons why we just don't have more information. Because anything that is put out, especially by uh, MGM Resorts, which owns uh, which owns the casino from which all the gunfire uh, came during this event, that the uh, Mandalay Bay and, and any of the security footage they put out there in a sense, may be used against them in a civil action. Right? This isn't a criminal issue. Paddock is dead. Paddock's brain, I should note, is being studied by a neuro, 
uh, neuroscientist out in California. So I, they're also that is how unclear this whole mass shooting situation still is. They are studying the not the suspect, the shooter, the shooter's brains to see if maybe he suffered from some kind of degenerative brain disease and, and essentially went crazy and homicidal. I, I guess that's I'm assuming that's why they're studying his actual uh, brain tissue at this point. Uh, otherwise, that doesn't seem like it's a worthwhile endeavor to spend anyone's time on. Right. So they really seem to have nothing. I think that the the lawsuits on this are going to stretch on for quite a long time. And that's one of the reasons that there's not more information out there. Uh, but you read the stories of these survivors and what they've gone through. And I do feel like and many of them, as I said, have trouble sleeping still. They suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, a lot of them, hundreds of people were shot. I mean, hundreds of people were hit. Uh, a, a lot of them are having continued health difficulties. And I'm sh- I would assume, I mean, we can never really know what it's like to be in that position unless you're in it. But I would assume that to get a sense of closure, answers about this case would, would be helpful. And also to have a sense that maybe if there's something that could be done in the future to mitigate such a, a horrific mass casualty event, that might also bring, I don't know, it might, it might bring some measure of comfort to those who have uh, suffered so much as a result of what has happened or what happened in Las Vegas. Um, I still think to this day that there must be some evidence that either hasn't been found or has not yet been shared that would shed a lot of light on what happened there. And uh, they've started to push on some policy measures. They're looking into bump stocks. They're looking into the uh, background check system. But for some reason, this shooting did not have the uh, follow-up that I had hoped that it would because it's really hard for anyone at this point to give any kind of answer to what what happened. Why did this guy do this? So, you know, I, I and today I know is also the anniversary of uh, Sandy Hook, which is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm thinking about this, uh, because they did do exhaustive investigations into uh, Adam Lanza, the Sandy Hook uh, mass shooter. He went to do a, it's one of the most horrific events in, in in my lifetime, um, but they they they've looked into that very thoroughly, and sure enough, Lanza was evil, but also clearly disturbed. And uh, they went through. They had I know he tried to destroy his computer equipment, but they were able to recover a fair amount of background information on him. And just the they had an understanding that this was a this was a ticking time bomb. Adam Lanza, uh, he was. It was just a question of when, uh, and you know, we maybe we'll get there with the Las Vegas shooting. I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm putting it out there because it does not sit well with me that here we are, given the law enforcement resources that we have, that we now more than ever have the ability to get a really full picture of a person's habits and thoughts, and you know, you you got credit card receipts, online searches, phone stuff, text messages, everything. And with all of that, the answer to why did Stephen Paddock go up into a hotel room in the Mandalay Bay 
and shoot as many people at a concert in Las Vegas as he possibly could. And why haven't we seen any videos or anything else of this, by the way? But the answer is we, we don't know. That's the answer. And that's it's just not good enough. It's not good enough at this point. We, we need to have um, a better answer than that. And if it's that we've looked at everything and investigators have done everything they possibly can and they still don't have an answer and they're sure they've, I suppose that's what we'll be left with. But I, I'm still wondering and I'm still still hoping that we'll figure out more about what happened that day in Las Vegas. But all right, we're going to run to a break here. I'm, I'm going to close it out. We're going to change the, the tone here a bit and, and a, a lot, actually, and talk a bit, a bit about Christmas. We'll lighten it up at the end of the show. I'll be right back. All right, getting ready to close up shop here in the Freedom Hut today, folks. I got to say, I kind of forgot that we only have one week left before Christmas. I'm I'm a little bit uh, behind on some of my preparations for for the holiday. I, I need to do some things. I don't really have much in the way of last-minute shopping and because I'll tell you that in my family, we are uh, waiting – on the next generation yet. I have three siblings and we're all in our, well, one is in her twenties. The rest of us are in our thirties and we're, we're working on a couple of us got marriage in the, in, in the sites. And then we're looking for the next generation soon. I know my mom will be happy to hear that, but uh, we don't have little ones who should have that joy of coming out to the Christmas tree and seeing all the presents there. And I mean, I remember being a kid and I can still remember some of the presents that my mom got me over the years. I think I got a, a He-Man like castle of some kind. I forget what it was, what it was technically called, but it was this giant castle for my He-Man toys. Cause I really liked he I went, I went through a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles phase, a He-Man phase. He-Man was when I was really young and that was really more my older brother, but I, whatever Mason thought was cool. I thought was cool. And I, I, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were definitely a big part of my childhood. Uh, but my mom would get me, you know, the latest Ninja Turtle stuff and, you know, Ninja Turtle, like Nerf toys and everything else. And, uh, you know, it was just, uh, it was great being a kid and, and opening up the, the presents and leaving the huge mess of wrapping paper on the ground afterwards. And my mom would play Christmas music. And I have all these nice memories of it. But now we're, in my family at least, we're all at the age where, you know, we just don't really need to give each other yet another green sweater. You know, we, we kind of reached the point in this whole process where we're just happy to have a day off from work, be together, go to midnight mass together, uh, which we do, and and then just relax and be together as a family. And that's that's... <laughs> Christmas has has evolved for us in that sense. It used to be like, where are my presents? And like running around and throwing them in the air and going all crazy. And, you know, you know, it was like it was a frenzy. It was one after another. And my mom would get stocking stuffers. And, you know, she went all out with all the little things that kids want. You know, we had stockings. She put some little presents in there. And, you know, some presents were from Santa and some were from my different relatives. I'm not going to lie. I mean, my relatives weren't, uh, you know, a little bit, little bit of a partial effort sometimes on the gifts, especially because my birthday was only a few days after Christmas. I'm just putting it out there. I'm not, I'm not mad about it. But to this day, I feel like it wasn't really always a high, a high priority. Uh, I remember one year I got a uh, Christmas present. It was wrapped up, and it was, uh, it was a pair of socks with a uh, a tree frog on them. 
Another year, I got a T-shirt from a. This is from not my immediate family. A T-shirt with with two, I guess, cherubs on it, but it was really two fat babies with wings. And I, I remember thinking, when am I going to wear a T-shirt with two fat winged babies on it? Like, what what is this? I mean, I, maybe it was supposed to be a hipster thing. I don't know. But I never wore that T-shirt. I can tell you, I did donate that one to uh, to Goodwill. So I hope somebody out there is wearing Bucks double fat baby with wings T-shirt and enjoying it very much. Uh, but yeah, we we don't um, we do not do the big Christmas gifts thing. And I think it's I think it's great, by the way, because it was such a, a pressure in previous years. You know, I got to run out. I got five people in my immediate family that are doing gifts, and I know this. Some of you might be like. Buck, why are, you, why are you becoming the Grinch? But we, we cook for each other, and we we hang out, and we, we're together as a family. And I, I think when you get kids, you got to do the Christmas thing for them, if you can. You know, look, if it's also a tough year, and you tell them, we got to wait, maybe next year we'll do more presents. This year we're just going to be together. You know, if it's a financial issue, totally, totally get that, too. Well, look, I'm, I'm going to tell you, that's a part of it as well for all of us. It's like, I don't really want to feel obligated to spend the money that we all seem to feel like we have to spend to show how much we care about each other at Christmas time. I'd much rather have it be about uh, being together with the people you want to be with this year. I'm going to also sneak over at some point, I think, and spend some time with Molly's family and, uh, and Harold the half pit bull that she rescued that Molly rescued from a cardboard box in the street uh, a long time ago. So uh, I, I'm I'm looking forward to it, and I just realized though now I've got some last minute preparations that I've got to get going for the holiday season. So uh, we will see if I do make Brussels sprouts or any food for my family. I'm going to make sure that I nail it this time. I felt like my I was not bringing my A game on Thanksgiving, so I got to make up for that this time around. And uh, I'm also going to see. You know, there's always somebody, and I know you probably have this too. There's always somebody who gives you a gift, and it's kind of last minute, and you're like, "Oh, I should have gotten you a gift too, I guess." And then you're left being the guy or gal who didn't reciprocate the gift. You know, there's all this pressure with this stuff. I just, I'm not, I'm not into it. You know, I think that we should all be able to just max and relax and listen to uh, Christmas music, which I will say I've heard very little Christmas music so far. Maybe because I haven't been in a lot of stores because I haven't been doing a lot of Christmas shopping. I guess it all makes sense now. But even in CVS and some of those places, I haven't gotten my annual dose of, isn't Bing Crosby the guy that does all the, like he does a lot of Christmas stuff, right? People like Bing Crosby. And who's the guy, the uh, the young handsome guy with the supermodel wife who's like a crooner, but a modern day one, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, what's his name? That one. Yeah, yeah, that guy. I haven't, you know, I haven't heard much in the Michael Bublé. He's a very talented fellow, but I haven't heard him this year either. So we'll see what happens with the, the Christmas preparations this last week. I just can't believe it's one week, and then I'm, I'm going to be on vacation uh, after Christmas, as some of you know, those of you who are OSS original squad. Uh, I my birthday is December twenty eighth, so I will be away. I am uh, taking a vacation, going away with Miss Molly. For that week, and we will be uh, away from the hut. We'll be coming back in the new year. I can tell you, I'm holding off on some of them, but we have some really exciting announcements about this show that 
probably next week we'll make some of them, and certainly in January we'll be telling you about it. The History Podcast is a green light. Um, I will tell you that the podcast is called Shields High. So we've got our name, we've got our podcast, and there are a whole bunch of other things I'm going to be able to tell you about. Expanding the show, uh, new branding, fun stuff we're going to be doing for the show, some travel. I'll get to meet some of you in markets across the country next year. A lot of really cool stuff coming up. So maybe next week before Christmas, I'll be able to share more of that. So give give us all something to get ready for other than just getting presents for each other. So an honor and a pleasure to be here with you today, team. Excited to join you tomorrow night. Until then, no matter what, no matter what your present list looks like for this year and how many lines you're going to have to stand in shopping and all the rest of it, Shields High.